This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. This week, we welcome Brent Brookbush of the Brookbush Institute of Human Movement Sciences. We kick off our conversation with Brent discussing his background in personal training and steady progress over the years, eventually receiving his doctorate in physical therapy. Brent holds a fresh perspective on human movement and explains his simple approach to learning the mechanics of the bod. Here are his three rules to learning anatomy that will most certainly enhance your understanding of muscle and joint actions. We also chat about Brent's preference to single-jointed exercises as a means to both diagnose and correct movement issues. Additionally, we go back and forth about the function of the hamstrings, and as Brent tells it, the glutes are really where the money is made. Finally, hear what's on Brent's schedule for this year and what his website and seminar can offer you. From a man who is balls deep in continuing education himself, he still finds time to hold his own two-day clinic, which can be found on brentbrookbush.com. If knowledge is power, then Power Athlete Radio is about to promote you to NFCEO. This is episode 97. Power Athlete Nation, how are you doing? Welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. This is Denny. I'm joined with Callie, Luke, and Tex. Hello. And today we have special guest Brent Brookbush of the Brookbush Institute of Human Movement Science. Yeah, it's a mouthful. That is a mouthful, and I've been practicing to uh, to let that flow with with the best energy possible. How many how many times did you practice that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, one time live. You can tell with that delivery, it was numerous amounts of time. Like if one you guys, or two, maybe? If you guys want a challenge, just try to say Brent Brookbush five times in a row as I, fast as you possibly can. I can't. The problem is, none of us can count to five, so <laughs> that's it. And, and none of us are sober right now, so that's so right. strength training only is what you're saying? One to four reps? Endurance <laughs> training is like maybe five? You know how yes. Rip says... talking you, cardio. Come on. <laughs> you know how Rip says, Rip says fives? We say fours. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Awesome. So, so, uh, so, Denny, let's get to know Brent a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, if anybody did, well, I should let Brent introduce himself a little bit, and just maybe you can start with just like your your personal journey. Uh, what led you to develop um, your Institute of Human Movement Science? Okay. And just you know, kind of what like your overall mission is with the uh, with the institute. My mission. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right. So. Yeah, I've had kind of an interesting career. I actually started as a jazz studies major, which I'm sure most people wouldn't guess. I uh, went to a performing arts academy, came out to New York, got a, a jazz trombone scholarship. And then, unfortunately, I tore a muscle in my face, uh, which kind of ended my jazz career. 
at the time I was doing personal training as a way to to kind of support my education to support the bills that were I was uh, accruing mm -hmm. through my you know college studies and just trying to make a living as a jazz player, which is not easy. Uh, so after I, I blew out my chops, is what they call it, I tore my orbicularis oris, you know, I kind of just let personal training take over full time. Um, after a few years, I ended up at New York Sports Club, or TSI, Town Sports International, Washington Sports Club, Philly Sports Clubs, and I met a friend of mine, or now a friend, he was teaching their foundations program. And Foundations was kind of the program that all trainers for New York Sports Club had to go through to uh, keep their employment and to keep progressing up the different tiers. And when I saw my friend speak, I was like, I want to do that. So shortly after that, about six months later, I got hired on as faculty at New York Sports Club. That was about ten years ago. I spent three years as faculty for New York Sports Club and three years of, uh, uh, at Equinox. Uh, and then... After Equinox, I started what what is now the Brookbush Institute was then B2C Fitness, thinking that maybe I could enhance the way individuals are educated. You know, the Foundations program at New York Sports Club and the Equinox training program are good programs, but I just felt that there were gaps and there were ways to deliver the information better. And at around the same time, I... Uh, also got picked up by the National Academy of Sports Medicine, who I've been faculty for for the last five years. Now, in all of that time, I also acquired a bachelor's in sports management, a master's degree in exercise science, and then just finished up my doctorate in physical therapy. Um, and more or less all for the aim of, if I want to do this thing that we're going to call my mission in education, that I was going to need both a doctorate that allowed me to put my hands on people, which is why I went for physical therapy. Manual therapy is kind of an important component of that corrective exercise paradigm and optimal movement and optimal performance. And then I knew I needed a doctorate as a terminal degree if I wanted to keep teaching. Um, and then as far as the mission, you know, I've, I've kind of hinted at it. The mission is to optimize education in human movement science. I think there's a lot of smart people out there. Um, I think there's not a lot of great delivery out there, if that makes sense. Um, I know we've all been to various conferences and had the unfortunate experience of sitting through somebody we look up to who maybe doesn't teach very well. You know, they're really smart, but they have a hard time explaining what they're trying to get across. And yeah, the, kind of, the pedagogy of it all. Yeah, that's kind of the bridge I'm trying to fill. You know, my geek out is uh, these predictive models of postural dysfunction, which I've been working on, which kind of build off Yanda and Sarman and Dr. Mike Clark of NASM's work. Um, so that's kind of my my little human movement science geek out. But my my focus is really, you know, I consider myself an educator first. Yeah. You have well, any other questions? That was the that was the pretty. No, that's it. That's it. Hey, thanks thanks for uh, coming on. Um, no, you. Uh, so I mean, shit. You you have clearly an extensive background, and you have done. Um, you know, you have a diverse background because you came from that that time where you were working as a trainer out of necessity, and then that blossomed into sort of a passion for human movement, and then beyond that, wanting to really like perfect the way that. Uh, 
you, you diagnose athletes or you have people come in and you diagnose movement or movement patterns or issues or holes in the training, et cetera. Um, you know, and what are you like? You're like 24 years old, right? So you're like a, you're like a, a baby genius. And I wish I was 24 years old. Holy and you have, you're like, do you have like your doctorate or do you have it now or you're still in yes. the process of getting it? Okay, great. Yeah, I have my doctorate and you can add a decade to 24. So <laughs> But still, I mean, that's a that's an impressive resume. Um, so, as as where you sit right now, um, your your online training resource is pretty extensive, right? Can you talk a little bit more about what you offer in terms of um, your website and uh, and how people can access you online, what they receive from the website? Yeah, absolutely. So, right now, it's at brentbrookbush.com, which I know sounds very narcissistic, but that was not the original intention of that website. That website started as um, I, love my, I love myself .com. <laughs> It started as I love myself.com exactly. Um, <laughs> and it was just pictures of me. And then I decided to write some stuff. <laughs> um, but what it actually started is is you know originally uh, B2C Fitness was an outsourced in-house training and development program that was based mostly on live content and the online stuff was the support material. Mm -hmm. Now times have changed and everything's flipped around. So now we have an online training program with workshops that support the material, um, mm -hmm. which is great. You know, it's it's definitely changed. I think I was just trying to explain why it's BrentBrookBush.com. Um, <laughs> anyway, so that's kind of how that started. Uh, now we have 195 articles, 260 videos, um, 80 panel discussions. And I think the most important thing about the website, which I've really enjoyed trying to create, is everything is totally integrated in a way that you can only do through online resources. So you open up one of my articles, and it's it has links. Everything that we discuss is like hyperlinked if we have another article on it. So sure. if it's like anatomy and we talk about the glute max, you can click on glute max, and it'll lead you to a 16-page article on the glute max. Uh, we're even now with the research library starting to create research reviews for all of these different studies we've cited. So now you can even click on the bibliography and read more about the research study if you were interested in the citation. Of course, everything has illustrations. Everything has videos embedded. Mm -hmm. So you get this much more dynamic uh, learning environment. And it also leads to a little bit more free flow, which I think a lot of people appreciate. I keep telling people that I'm trying to basically create the Wikipedia of human movement science. Mm -hmm. Like, I just want you to, like, get in there and be reading an article, and all of a sudden, three hours later, realize you're 17 articles deeper. Yeah, it's a wormhole. And happy about it. Yeah, the wormhole. And you know the other thing, too, about, I mean, and, and we are constantly striving to have the same sort of model because uh, one of the biggest things is, there's so much bullshit online, um, and you know, not any one, for instance, like functional movement screening or something like that, is a, is a catch-all. And so, you want to provide context for everything that you do. And when you have that seamless integration of other resources and videos or other articles, it will constantly create. It'll paint a picture of context. That way, you're not listening or viewing something within a vacuum and just making assumptions about that being, you know, like some, some, some broad, you know, broad-reaching uh, type of concept or whatever it is, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I think, I think that is one thing that 
some of even the people I look up to um, who have, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll call it the guru race. You know, I've kind of I've kind of gotten sucked up into the guru race. I'm competing with guys like you know Mike Boyle and Gray Cook and Gary Gray. Although I wouldn't say I'm on that that level of notoriety yet. You you kind of get what I'm talking about. Everybody's mm -hmm. kind of out there trying to teach, and I don't. I think a lot of them have really great information, but like you said, because the foundational information isn't there, sometimes some context gets lost. And unless you have a huge base foundation going in. It's hard to retroactively, yeah, yeah, de definitely. It's it's hard to kind of like retroactively impart that base knowledge if you didn't establish it on like whatever the database is to begin with. Um, yeah, um, so uh, I'm sure Tex would be interested if if he wants to chime in. I mean, Tex is well, this is yeah. I'd like to kind of just add on to this conversation. I mean, uh, all of us here, Brent, we've all seen kind of a gap between what's being educated and what's actually working and being used uh, and applied to gyms all over the world. So it's kind of very interesting that you, you yourself have seen that gap and you've created just kind of this whole online database, just that base level of knowledge. And guys like Cook and, and Boyle, they all, they almost assume that everybody went through that base level of education. Well, you recognize people don't. Uh, we're fortunate to travel around and, and teach a lot of seminars and the first question I always ask is how many of you have taken anatomy? And we're lucky if 15, 10% people have actually raised their hand. Right. Yeah, I mean you gotta you gotta look at the history a little bit. I mean obviously I wouldn't blame Gray Cook or Mike Boyle for their products. Their products are excellent. But you know Mike Boyle I think is a strength and conditioning coach and has always been a strength and conditioning coach. <laughs> and it's an, almost an accident the personal trainers found him. And the same thing with Gray Cook, you know, Gray Cook originally created a course for physical therapists where the minimum standard is a doctorate. So he can assume a lot more and then personal trainers found him again. So, you know, it, it is very interesting, you know, how that gap does exist. Um, I'm personally glad it's there because it created a business opportunity for me. Uh, back to uh, ilovemecom Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I totally get what you guys say, and it's, it's tough. The minimum standard for personal trainers, if that's kind of where we're talking about here, is pretty low. I think you guys know that. Like, you can, there's a lot of certifications out there, so-called certifications, that don't really teach much. Yeah. The test is so easy that even if they have the information in, like, let's say the textbook that they require reading of, the test is so easy nobody actually has to comprehend, retain, and apply that information in their daily practice to actually pass the exam. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm curious too, <clears throat> personally I'm just curious, I know that the doctorate is required so that you can put your hands on people um, and, you know... Not necessarily, it's, it's now the standard in physical therapy, but ATCs still have an MS, um, LMTs mm -hmm. uh, now have a license, Okay. Uh, the license in massage therapy, but they don't have to have any other schooling. So. Okay. Um, so, in, in terms of what you're using it for, though, it is it's it's sort of necessary for that manipulation side of like physical therapy, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And even now, um, I'm going to definitely have to balance as I move forward. You guys have been very gracious in noting that I I do try to keep things very practical and very hands-on in the education I teach. Mm -hmm. But I do mostly physical therapy at this point. Right. So 
I'm very fortunate at the facility I work at to have two of the best personal trainers I've ever seen in my life um, as coworkers. They refer all of their clients to me when they when pain gets to a point where they need to refer out. So it's only fair for me to refer back to them when I have somebody who just wants personal training. So mm-hmm. um, it's different. I mean, physical therapy and personal training are not the same thing for sure. Um, I deal with people with who are in pain, which is a whole different, whole different ball game. They want pain to go away. So occasionally I get somebody who's performance centered, which is always fun. You know, I do still love putting on my sadist hat and kicking somebody's butt into the ground, but you know, I don't do that quite as often as I used to. Uh, where are you based out of, like regionally? I'm in New York City. Oh, you're still there? Okay, okay, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Cool. I love I this. Know- I know there is a, I'm sorry to jump in, I know there's kind of a, a lot of talk with uh, ACSM and NSCA kind of joining joining forces to make a national kind of regulated industry of personal training and strength and conditioning. I was curious if you had any opinion or thought on that since you know kind of the work and the education that, that would have to go into it for somebody to get certified. So yeah, there's a, a lot of, there's a good argument there on both sides. Right now we're a self-regulated industry which has its pros and cons. We can move and make changes quickly. Um, we actually have a probably a broader scope because we're self-regulated than we would if we had some sort of regulatory body overseeing us. I think the most compelling argument against um, licensure of personal trainers is, however, who gets to pick the information we're responsible for. Mm-hmm. So if we look at ACSM and NSCA, they have no corrective exercise model. Is that something that you're comfortable with? That personal trainers go in and they don't even know that you probably shouldn't stretch your hamstrings. They're still being taught general stretching guidelines from 1980. Right. I'm not comfortable with that. Um, And that's not to say that ACSM and NSCA don't have some incredible resources and their strong points under themselves. I mean, obviously, without ACSM's risk stratification, we'd be in trouble. And obviously, NSCA has the best strength and conditioning journal out there as far as research goes. But, you know, is NASM going to come to the table? What about some of the other major players? Like, who gets to make those decisions? I'm always just curious as to, like, when something like this comes up, um, I'm curious as to what what's really the driving force behind this. Is there is there really this noble like altruistic? We want all trainers to be able to to save lives and not be meatheads and and to like make the barrier of entry a little bit higher. And you need you know this this breadth of knowledge. Or is it just like one of it's like one of those um, revenue streams that people see an opportunity where there is really no structure or no like. Um, you know, overall, like, structure, and can we somehow monetize this in a way that, you know, like, fuck, you get you get a continue, continued education credits every year that are required, and et cetera, and it's just, like, this never-ending revenue stream. I mean, I guess I am a little bit skeptical when it comes to stuff like that, but um, do you have any the, thoughts uh, on that? Just, just to kind of add to that, um, a while back, the uh, NSCA offered the CSCS and then a lot of physical therapists and athletic trainers were getting their CSCS. So you had college strength and conditioning coaches and then they were going kind of butting heads with the athletic trainer and the athletic trainer said, 
well, I have my CSCS, so I'm as smart as you and smarter with my with my master's or doctorate. So what they did, they started the CSCCA, so the College Strength and Conditioning Coaches Association, mm -hmm. and the only way to get uh, that certification is if you've apprenticed under uh, one of the master coaches. So they kind of increased that. Maybe <laughs> there was some ego involved, but they kind of increased the barrier for entry to become a college strength and conditioning coach. Sounds like we're chasing our tails a little bit on that exactly. one. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, man, I mean, I, I get where you're coming from with the revenue stream thing. I think, I think the driving force behind the licensure, though, and there's probably a little ego involved in this, but it's it's raising the minimum standard. Mm -hmm. It's making sure that individuals, and I'm sure we could go down a list of names, but you know, those of us in the know, like, aren't you a little tired of seeing six pack in six weeks? You open it up, and it's a bunch of hip flexor exercises that concentrate on toning and spot reduction, and you're just like, really? If you built one more myth into this article. Right. I don't know. There, there would be even. I don't even know if you could. <laughs> there was a hint of truth in this, right? Yeah. There's no factual anything. <laughs> yes. It's it's a fictional story about the abs. Yeah. Um. But you guys get what I'm saying. I think. I think that's actually the driving force is raising the minimum standard, so that we can be proud of calling ourselves personal trainers, being proud of calling ourselves strength and conditioning coaches. Which, at this point, I think we get some odd looks. You know, some people think we're just meatheads because there are so many quote-unquote meatheads out there. Mm -hmm. um, as far as the revenue thing, uh, I'm an educator, so <laughs> I might be a little biased on this one. Yeah. But, you know, continuing ed, you have to do. I, I have no respect for the individual who says, I have 20 years' experience but it hasn't been to a continue, continuing education course in the last two years. Right. Like, you have to do something to keep your mind fresh and to learn the new techniques. I try to do a continuing education course for myself every quarter. Yeah. I mean, I think that, yeah, that goes without saying. That's... Uh, it's. I would agree 100%. I mean, that's a that's a huge part of what we do, and we're all proponents of that, and we... we are constantly involved in, in, you know, going through different experiences, training different types of people, different types of athletes, people in uh, different demographics of, of age groups, you know. I mean, I think that it all gives you a perspective. And, um, you know, experience is just is just something that you can't uh, – it's, it's not something that you can learn in a clinic and the same thing with a clinic. It's not like it doesn't somehow miraculously provide you with 20 years experience. So those two things just really go hand in hand with each other. You can't really have one without the other. <clears throat> yeah, experience has to be a concerted effort towards getting better. Otherwise, you're just practicing stuff that doesn't work. Yeah. You have 20 years of practice of stuff that doesn't work. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Good job being mediocre. I'll, yeah. I'll tell you stuff didn't work when I took anatomy and I saw I was watching one of your videos the three rules of muscles and it was like I wish I had this back when I was freaking in anatomy because it was this is the muscle this is the function and you kind of broke down just a way to identify every function of every muscle in your body so I'd like to kind of go into that with our audience if you don't mind your sure three rules I, of muscles. I got the three rules of muscles from a friend of mine named Pete Schultz who's a PT and trainer out here in New York um, I don't know where he got it. Uh, I'm sure it's been handed down from kinesiology class to kinesiology class. But it's just basically look at 
looking at a muscle for what it is, right? So all the muscle will do is contract and relax. That's it. They're, they're little force generators. They want to shorten. Um, if they're not shortening, then they're relaxing. So all this stuff about, you know, the proximal side being tight and the distal side being long and shaping of a muscle and tone and, like, basically giving muscles attributes that would almost impart a human quality, like they have little brains inside them, you just stop thinking that way, right? Like, you just go, in, okay, all a muscle does is contract. That makes sense. I can deal with that. Right, and then the second rule of muscles is muscles only work on joints they cross, which also makes a lot of sense, and I know most people are like, duh. Um, obviously, my glute crosses my hip. I know it moves my hip. Where that gets a little bit more confusing, and as I teach that functional anatomy course you guys are kind of referencing to where all those videos come from, um, you take something like the biceps brachii, and you go, well... You know, that's a, that's a, that, that moves my elbow. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that your biceps brachii crosses your shoulder, elbow, and radial ulnar joint. So it can flex the shoulder and have an effect on shoulder movement. It can obviously flex the elbow. We know that one. But it can also do supination at the radial ulnar joint. It happens to be a fairly strong supinator. Um, I think the other thing that, that that second rule does, which is nice, is it takes something like the ab myth, you know, with all of these leg raising exercises for the abs, and you start realizing this isn't rectus abdominis exercise. It can't be. The rectus abdominis doesn't cross the hip. It can't move the hip. So these hip flexion exercises have to be caused by muscles that cross the hip. Um, in this case, like we could say maybe like the psoas and iliacus, although there's more hip flexors than that. Um, and if we start looking at, okay, psoas and iliacus is probably what's getting worked in those hip flexion exercises, it actually solves the issue of, well, why do I feel it in my lower abs? Because we also know that the psoas connects to the lumbar spine, and the way it kind of wraps around forward lies right under the lower abdominal area. And then, of course, the last rule is just muscles work best in the direction of their fibers. So if you can visualize a muscle, and, and it's grain per se, right? So like, you know, wood has a grain, muscles kind of have a grain. And you just think about the direction of those fibers and how it's going to pull a bone when that those fibers shorten in the direction of them, you can pretty much figure out any joint action that any muscle will do. With just, a, with just a picture, really. We actually do exercises in that course where I try to pick exercises or try to pick muscles. These are generally new um, new students who haven't seen a lot of this stuff before. Right. But I'll pick an, I'll pick an uh, a muscle that I'm hoping they haven't seen, like let's say Jumelis, Jumelis Superior, right? I've never seen Jumelis Superior. They don't even know what it does. And it doesn't matter. Because within two minutes, they've told me everything that that muscle could potentially do. And now all we have to do is add a name to it. Which is kind of cool. Once you get yeah. a good... But then, you know, the nice thing about learning anatomy this way is the better your internal visual model gets of the human body, the more, the more you know. 
because you understand the concepts of how these tissues work, it's no longer rote memorization. It's just continually working on that internal model that you have in your head of what things look like, and you would be surprised at what you can solve. Crazy issues. I'm sure I could come up with some crazy case study involving you know, history of pathology, acute injury, blah, 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 and weird pains. And if you have that good visual model and you just stick to the concepts, before you know it, you have three or four interventions that you could use to potentially correct the issue. Yeah, what I love is, um, you know, a couple of things is that it takes, it, especially this model in terms of learn, just like learning that base level of like an anatomy. Um, I mean, a couple of things is it takes the mystery out of it, right? So even somebody, for instance, who is not in strength and conditioning or not a personal trainer, um, you know, it can empower them to be a little more cognizant of how their body moves or, you know, identify aches and pains and, and be a little bit more proactive in their own, whether it be recovery or um, just awareness in terms of how to adjust their training if certain things are feeling certain ways. It's not a mystery, right? So it's, you know, like if, if you don't know anything about how cars operate and that's a mystery to you, then the idea of opening the hood is just like, it's overwhelming. But you know, like not to be like an a-hole, but like the people who are working on my vehicle are not brain surgeons, you know what I mean? Um, they just have they just have an understanding of the components and uh, and when you take the mystery out of it, it's it's far less overwhelming. And I think it's just for some reason there is that that like initial, um, I don't know, people are deterred because they they think there's just too much going on. It's too complicated. but, I mean, certainly the body is a is a complex operating system, but in terms of just like learning, like you said, the functionality of the muscle groups um, and how they coordinate to the joints is it's really not it's not that complicated. Yeah, I think I think you can have respect for the fact that the human body is probably the most complicated system we know of, but most of the stuff we do can be broken down into some fairly simple concepts. You know, the geek out, which we all love to do, you know, that, that'll that take you down some roads, but, you know, you should still be looking through all of that material as you maybe go down the rabbit hole of, let's say, sensory receptors. You should still be looking for the practical application of that information, that, that couple of tangible chunks that you can bring back to the clinic or the, the gym. Right. The other thing I think that I've been very careful about how I, I move forward is there's a, a buzzword in education called scaffolding. And it's just how you go from point A to point Z. Right. So if you want somebody to be able to do high level algebra and you're starting with two plus two, what are the steps you're going to take to get there? What practice problems are you going to build in? What concepts are you going to teach in each lesson? And I think we've been pretty careful and pretty good about putting out information that continues to build a scaffolding that is literally one simple step at a time. I'm trying to create something where you don't have to take in a shovel full into your mouth at a time. Like I want spoonfuls. So no, so just like you, like, like you're kind of pointing out, it's just it's small chunks and small concepts, and then before you know it, like you put a few years into this, 
And you look back and you go, man, I remember when Planes of Motion was hard. And now Brent asked me what my tibial internal rotators were, and I crushed it. Yeah. Like there's just a bunch of steps between those two things. Yeah. Um, Tex, anything you wanted to add on to that point? Uh, no, it's uh, just that simple chunking model that we talk about at our seminars. I mean, uh, Brent, I'm sure you heard, uh, we've read a book called Talent Code. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar. Mm -hmm. uh, well, write it down. Dan Coyle, Talent Code, definitely recommend it. And he just kind of talks about we learn to play music, we learn to read, we learn to do math, and we learn to move just as we do uh, anything else. So if you're kind of taking that idea and that concept, he calls it chunky. And it's it's almost like the scaffolding you just described to a T. Yeah, I, I, I definitely like that concept. I would say to add to that, we got a chunk, and you and it's what my friend Rick calls, you got to put in your reps. You know, like we all go to the gym, and we know if we want stronger legs, we got to put in our reps. Yeah. We got to do sets and reps of squats or deadlifts or whatever we want to do, right? I think the same thing applies for learning, which is, you know, another thing. We keep trying to build in more and more activities into our website. It's like, yeah, so you need to you need to learn your anatomy and then you gotta figure out how to practice that. So like we have graphs in the functional anatomy courses where I make you go, okay, let's analyze let's analyze the pec fly. What two joints are moving? Good. Shoulder and scapula. What are the joint actions? Horizontal adduction, protraction. Good. What are the horizontal adductors? Pectoralis major, anterior deltoid. What are the protractors? Pectoralis minor and serratus anterior. Great. Let's do a reverse fly. <laughs> you guys kind of get where I'm going with that. And we just right. keep, keep breaking down bigger and bigger movement patterns. Right. And before you know it, they can, they can just lay out like all of the muscles responsible for each joint action like within a few hours. And that's what they need then to use like the overhead squat assessment to do corrective exercise. Uh, that's what they need to be able to analyze a squat, which is a big deal right now, right? If somebody's knees bow in, like what are they seeing? If it's femoral internal rotation, they now understand because they've done all these graphs ahead of time, they can list those internal rotators no problem and address them. Do you ever find, uh, just curious if you ever find that someone can um, you know, do the all, all the identification that you're uh, that you're referring to, but has a problem seeing good human movement, even though they have sort of that scientific knowledge and they have that database and they understand, um, you know, the order of operations, what's doing what, but they they can't see good movement because you know maybe they don't have a lot of experience or is there ever a disconnect? You think? Um, I think that, you know, I always take a 50-50 approach when I'm teaching, at the very least. So if somebody doesn't get something, the first question I ask is, how is this my fault? If somebody wasn't getting being able to do a movement assessment, I would assume one of two things. Either they've never had it defined for them, i.e., let's say we're talking about feet turnout, right? So we all have seen, like, people's feet, like, turn out like ducks when they squat, probably not a great thing for the knee. Um, if they didn't know what they were looking for, I would define what neutral position is, make sure that they had 
really defined parameters like second toe parallel to the other second toe underneath the ASIS, right? It's a, just a very hard definition. Um, and then go, okay, so anything deviating from outside that definition is what you're looking for. And then you just got to throw examples in front of them, whether it's pictures, maybe they're more visual learners, right? Um, or you got to get them doing it and kind of show them what that looks like so, so they can get that visual model in their head. Um, and, you know, probably some of that, you know, if you were talking about a student that you just couldn't seem to get through, um, it might be one of those things. Either you're not teaching to their learning pathway, um, you keep trying to tell them what to do, and meanwhile they want to be shown. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe they have spatial reasoning issues. Maybe spatial reasoning isn't something they're very good at, which, which can also happen. Like mm -hmm. there's definitely, you know, I definitely know I see things that are sometimes hard to relate to students. Um, and who knows? Maybe I have a special extra little bit of spatial reasoning, maybe from my music background or something, mm -hmm. right? We know that, like, musicians have better spatial reasoning, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. Maybe I am seeing some stuff that other people don't see. I don't know. Maybe you're just, like, the, the, the movement whisperer, and it's just like <laughs> yeah. that. That only, works if, that only works if I can just walk over to somebody and go, now move right, and that Right. That would be, be a lot better. Maybe... Maybe it's easy to just overthink it all, and there is a lot of realize that. that there is some like uh, simplicity to it. Yeah, yeah. there, I, you know, there like can be. somebody, and it's obvious they're doing something wrong. Give whatever movement. Yeah. And you could overthink it. Well, it can't be this simple of a fix. It's you know I need to, you know, look at it from this uh, more detailed perspective. And that might not necessarily be the answer. Yeah, it's possible. You know, it's funny, like, my biggest thing is I, I love to ask people at seminars, does that look right to you? You know, if we put people in groups and, you know, we have them squatting with a little bit of a load or something, and, you know, we have them coaching each other, and I say to someone, you know, does that look like, does that look right to you? Does this, does this look like a good squat to you? And they're like, well, no. And I'm like, well, then fucking fix it. Like, you know, tell me, tell me what you're seeing and tell me what you would do to change it. Okay, great. Now tell that person. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just think that there is a reluctance there and I could just, there could be other variables at play, but um, it's kind of one of those oh, things yeah. where I'm like, you have to know what good movement looks like. I mean, you can, you're watching it right now. You've admitted to me that that's not good movement. And so it's just a, get, a matter of getting people comfortable with kind of conveying it. Um, so there are definitely other variables, but I just thought that was interesting. I'm curious. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I think there's an important distinction to make too, since we're kind of, you know, going around fixing the squat and corrective exercise. You have to make sure that there's a correlation between what you're seeing and the corrective exercise or the intervention that you're gonna um, impose on this individual. So if you guys go to like the introduction to the overhead squat assessment video that I teach, I'm very big on people using a template. Because there's only certain signs that you need to look for that will actually correlate with a intervention that will actually improve movement. And I think what starts to happen, with especially with a new personal trainer, is they notice everything. And meanwhile, most of that stuff 
has no correlation to any corrective exercise intervention or is something they can't fix. Uh, for example, how many of you guys have seen somebody's toes go up when they do a squat? Go up? Toes up, yeah. Like their toes like flail up off the ground. Yeah, all day. Like they're water skiing. Callie, yeah. you're one of them on your right foot. No, no hey, offense. Hey, I got, a, I got a tight hip, and I told you that in confidence. Screwed up toes. Um, <laughs> anyway, so back to this example. Although that actually correlates with um, a certain intervention, and I could break that down for you. It has to do with synergistic dominance of your long flexors and extensors and tibialis anterior inhibition and some stuff going on orthokinematically at the Taylor subtalar joints. Um, a personal trainer doesn't have the tools to actually correct that stuff. So they're looking at toes up, and they're going, well, how do I correct toes up? Well, you, at the very least, you'd have to uh, release the extensor halicus longus and the extensor digitorum longus. And most personal trainers don't even know where the extensor halicus longus and extensor digitorum longus is. And even if I showed them, there's not a self-administered technique that is a technique that somebody can do to themselves that will fix the problem. You pretty much have to manually release the EHL and EDL. So, what does that mean going back to our assessment? Stop looking at the freaking toes. You can't do anything about it anyway. You guys kind of get what I'm saying? Like, you got to be real careful about, like, what you're trying to address. So, I mean, so are you saying, for instance, like, you need to use the, like, whatever the assessment tool that you're choosing, whether it's overhead squat, I mean... At what point, what are you assessing then? I mean, you're, you're picking out bigger picture type things, or, I mean, what's... You're picking out specific dysfunctions, and they, and they can be the... Te it doesn't matter what movement pattern you mm -hmm. But from an... If, if we're talking about educators, you have a responsibility to create a template that points out the things that you can fix, and you can show them how to fix. Mm -hmm. If you have a gap, like let's say you were using rolling patterns, which I'm just now kind of getting into with, with Perry and, you know, Perry Nicholson of Stop Chasing Pain is a friend of mine and a great mm -hmm. guy and really smart. Um, if I was going to start teaching rolling patterns right now, that would be very irresponsible of me because if I saw something, I don't really have a whole lot of practice on how to correct it. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm just kind of starting in that whole world. Um, with you guys, if you're teaching an assessment, like you need to make sure that everything you point out that's wrong, you have a solution for. Well, so you're saying, yeah, like get the get the low hanging fruit type thing that you can actually manipulate, and you have an intended reason for manipulating it the way you are. Um, yeah. That yeah, that there's like this there that it is you know something that's being corrected, um, you know, in that moment, and I I, I can appreciate that um, absolutely. Um, Shit! Now I'm thinking about my damn toe, Luke. <laughs> well, that you know, it's it's just a weird thing. I thought that I, you know, I'm gonna go take this to ilovemyself.com, and I thought that it uh, <laughs> that it was a, a hip thing. And um, you look, know. If, if your toe moves funny, it's not your hip. Well, like if you if the front if the front of my foot raises up, if you don't think that it's because I'm leaning my 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 hip might be sort of leaning in a way that one foot comes up. Um, your hip might be part of a bigger movement compensation pattern, but the uh -huh. fit of your toes is below your knees. There's no muscle that crosses.
from your toes to above your knees. I get it. I get it. But I'm going to ask more questions because I am selfish. Mm-hmm. I'm a selfish son of a bitch. Um, what about the idea well, I, that I'm like narcissistic, so we're even. Uh, what um, about the what about the idea that um, you know there's it's like uh, there's this mysterious fascia that is all interconnected and runs uh, across our whole bodies and when one thing is you know I, I understand um, compensatory. Have you ever seen somebody fix somebody's hips and fix their toes? You know, I've seen some weird shit. I'm not going to lie, Brent. Uh, I'm not saying that specifically, um, but I, I have seen some weird stuff. Like, uh, uh, Luke, help me out, Bueller in, in Arizona. He's done some weird, like, um, you know, I don't know what the, the fancy terms are, but, like, basically activating muscle groups that were somehow... You know, there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of um, conflicting views on this, but, like, activating certain muscle groups um, that have affected movement patterns that you wouldn't even think were related, right? I mean... Sure, sure. that stuff That stuff definitely exists. And, look, fascia is something that was forgotten about for a long time. Generally, it was the stuff we cut out of a cadaver so we could see the cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's being studied, which is great. Uh, you will find the core subsystems articles in ilovemyself.com, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. Um where I do talk about these fascial systems, uh, i.e. the work of a guy named Leaning. But, you know, at the end of the day, you don't want to stray too far. If you have pain in your ankle and all you did was look at somebody's hip, you did them a disservice. Mm-hmm. Like, if there's pain in their ankle, there's something wrong probably with their foot or ankle. It's going to be yeah. pretty rare that you can fix an ankle problem without ever touching it. You know, and I think that's a, there's a balance there. You want to fix the entire compensation pattern because you are you are right in a way. You know, if your big toe goes up, mm-hmm. but let's say you have a labral tear. Mm-hmm. And this labral tear is leading to excessive internal rotation, which is leading to tibial external rotation, eversion of your foot, you're starting to pronate at your forefoot, or maybe the opposite, you're starting to become rigid in plantar flexion and end up with like a adducted big toe, right, like bunions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're going to have to correct the hip issue to ensure that whatever long-term, whatever solution you created at the ankle stays. Right, so in essence, I'm gonna to have to fix your foot and ankle to get you feeling better. Sure. But if I want that to stay with you, so that it's a long-term fix, I'm gonna to have to fix the hip too. Right. Okay. I get what you're saying. So is, you're not is that throwing line with the... flat feet and then just working up. Because I mean, if you're only attacking, say, like a valgus knee or a hip issue, and they got flat feet, shouldn't you kind of correct and build that arch to make sure everything upstairs doesn't happen? Absolutely. I mean, if we're talking about the knee, I just wrote an article for DeanSomerset.com. I'm sure you guys are, know who Dean Somerset is, but um, a more sophisticated approach to knee dysfunction. As far as I'm concerned, the knee is a victim joint. So the knee is between the ankle and the hip. Mm-hmm. Knee problems are always either ankle or hip issues, mm-hmm. and often both. So if I want to correct knee dysfunction, generally what I'm thinking is I'm thinking improving hip mobility, increasing dorsiflexion, strengthening the glute max and the inverters of the foot. Yeah. Like that would be a big general like corrective exercise paradigm for the knee. I think you're I think Texas probably like 
crying tears of joy right now because yeah, that's, that's pretty a, much I, all we I, preach. High five and angels over here. <laughs> Total text, text uh, love right there. Yeah. I, got, I, have, I have a lot of exercises on the inverters of the foot because as a basketball player, I have pretty much chronic knee pain. Right? Like basketball is a tough sport on the knees. It's getting my inverters and my glutes just as strong as possible that keeps me out of trouble. Right. You know, that's kind of like uh, the approach um, I feel that like power athlete really wants to, or like a statement that they want to make is, you know, let's bring the glutes and hamstrings back. You know, um, I, from what I see, it's like everything is like quad dominance, you know, really, really toes and knees. For like big movements, and uh, it's like everybody forgot how to use their glutes and hamstrings. Don't call it a comeback. Don't yeah. call it a comeback. I've been here for years. Yeah, posterior chain has been here for years. <laughs> so this was going to be one of my questions, Brian. It's 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 not necessarily a dysfunction. Maybe you can prove me wrong, but we're seeing people do a lot of work in using their quads and completely neglecting their hamstrings. So they may be kind of hitting standards or targets with their movements. They may be doing a lot of those bad reps in a short amount of time, but what are these long-term effects if they're completely neglecting like the, like their backsides? Um, as far as I'm concerned, you can forget the hamstrings. Um, I think a lot of – the hamstrings are a very weird muscle. So you guys are familiar with the term short and overactive, right, and long and underactive. We kind of know that paradigm of muscles. You guys with me? Um, elaborate. Okay, so generally muscles either when they get short, right, when they become adaptively shortened. Mm-hmm. Common terminology. Like sitting right? down all day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they, they generally become hypertonic and overactive. They want to get involved in everything, right? And then you have other muscles that generally get long. They get overstretched, which would usually be the functional antagonist to the muscles that we were just talking about. So, like, let's say we use the example of sitting. I sit all day, so my hip flexors get short. That generally leads to hip flexors becoming overactive. That also means my extensors, specifically my glute max and my glute med, are long, and they become underactive. Your hamstrings are weird in the sense that they actually become long and overactive. Uh, they become synergistically dominant for uh, gluteus maximus that's inhibited. Uh, so most of the time you can leave the hamstrings alone. You're better off maybe releasing the biceps femoris, like using a foam roll or a softball to just do some release work. Don't even stretch it. Forget about it. Um, and what, do then, you mean, what do you mean leave them alone, like in terms of uh, strength training or yeah. in terms of mobility? or? Yeah, so basically if a muscle's long and overactive, right, since it's long, you don't want to stretch it because that'll just make it longer, further altering those length-tension relationships and... Yeah, that I get. Activity, right? And then since it's overactive, do you really want to keep pushing it with strength exercise? How can you how can you um, determine if someone has overactive hamstrings? Because as far as we're concerned, what we see is is that the uh, tendency is to um, not use the posterior as much as it could be used in things like squats, right? So we see a lot of people squatting in a posture position that based on the movement pattern you can infer that they are relying heavily on the anterior um, or on the at least a, like a quad dominant more type of squat 
something that's like you know relying a little bit more on on um, you know the quads. You you're right. You just got to stop at the glutes. Okay. So we want people to have the strongest glutes they can possibly get. I mean, I we actually had shirts for a while that said "Got glutes on the back." Yeah. Um, it was great. Like you, I want you to have the biggest posterior you possibly can have. Um. With that being said, like the hamstrings, part of the problem is is the reason the glutes become so underactive is because the hamstrings become so dominant. And you guys can test this with all sorts of, of exercises. Like how many of you guys have done like a floor bridge and you can't get your hamstrings to stop like being more active than your glutes? Like that's a problem. You know, or you do you could do a, a glute max <clears throat> muscle test and you guys can look that up on YouTube. Like it's not it's not a hard test at all. Um, and you put your fingers on somebody's glutes and their hamstring and you ask them to extend their leg, and the first thing that fires is their biceps femoris. The second thing that will fire will be their erector spinae, and you'll be lucky if their glute max fires at all. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. The glute max is the largest muscle on the body, mm -hmm. both in weight and cross-sectional area. Mm -hmm. So the hamstrings will be fine. They'll stay strong. They get used. They get used plenty. Um, I think what we need to do is try to teach the body to get more out of the glute max. You could look at it that way. So by releasing the biceps femoris, your lateral hamstring, with a foam roll or a softball, and then really targeting the glute max with things like glute max and glute mean activation techniques, as well as bridges, hip thrusts, like really specific targeted stuff, once you get that glute max involved, you'll go back to your squats and deadlifts and be a powerhouse. I have no doubt about that. Yeah, interesting. I mean... Um... You know, I, I'm, I'm sure in a lot of ways we're kind of just speaking the same language in terms of the posterior. I mean, it is anybody who knows anything about anatomy knows that, yes, the glutes are the largest muscle in the body. And I think what we're, what we're trying to indicate to anybody who follows power athlete is that um, in terms of performance, on-field performance, sprinting, running as fast as you can, um, it does it does coincide with what you're saying in terms of recruiting the glutes and the posterior because we know that those are essentially the muscles that make us go right. Those right. are the things that are going to propel our bodies forward, and um, you know that's that's why we put such an emphasis in in terms of using strength training, um, uh, really th that is more biased towards the posterior. And um, you know we do I will say in a lot of our literature we do use. Uh, the term hamstring, um, but it's not out of neglect of the glutes. I mean, that's just something that I guess in um, you know my my uh, I guess uh, knowledge of the body is probably fractional compared to yours. But I think that ultimately we are saying a lot of the same things. It's just um, you know our low lying fruit for most of these people is not glute activation. It's just getting them to fucking sit back in a squat. You know what I mean? Sure, I think there's simple techniques out there. I think there's other low-hanging fruit. I think I'm just being a little bit more specific. And I think, mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, that even goes back to that that what we were just talking about with fascia and you don't and the hip versus the ankle. Like people tend to, especially in the fitness realm, tend to overgeneralize. You know, they take something that was a good idea, and then they try to apply it to everything making it a bad idea, mm -hmm. right? I think there's just a, a space there where there is low-hanging flute. Like, I mean, 
I think it was Tex and I were just talking about glute max and inverters, or glutes and inverters. Like yeah. that, that's pretty simple. It's a set of, you know, three or four exercises and their progressions. Like, let's leave it at that. Um, it does go back to the the context thing what we were talking about earlier too. Yeah. Sure. Um, I, I could go into how a glute uh, squat can't be a corrective exercise if we really want to blow this conversation up. Um, can but, I say go? I say go. Go. Yeah. Go. go yeah. Because I mean, we're shoot. We're we're here to learn, and this is. Uh, uh, as far as I know, we haven't paid you to be on the podcast, so um, this you is a free. You have not paid me to be on this podcast. <laughs> I will send you my invoice. Um, <laughs> all right. So, you know, I obviously I've been teaching the corrective exercise model for a really long time, starting with NASM, and you know now I have my my stuff as well. And there's an issue with using multi-joint movement patterns as activation exercises. There's this concept by a woman named Shirley Sarman, Dr. Shirley Sarman, a very well-known researcher in physical therapy, and it's called relative flexibility. So relative flexibility is not a good thing. It's not, well, I can touch my toes and you can't, so I'm relatively flexible. That's not what we're talking about. Um, relative flexibility has to do with if I'm stiff at my ankle, I'll steal mobility from my knees to get the movement pattern accomplished. Right? That's kind of how the human body works. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think we're, we, we can all totally get that. Yeah. So trying to use a multi-joint movement pattern as an activation exercise will always lead to relative flexibility because that's what the body wants to do. Right? So if you haven't fixed all of the pieces of the puzzle and you try to put it together with broken pieces, you actually haven't corrected anything. Yeah, I mean, you, and you see that too, like, um, you see that in various, like, movement screenings too. I mean, the body's going to find a way to get whatever it is accomplished that you're asking it to do. Um, and, and so can you, uh, and sort of to the converse, can you talk about the value of using single-jointed um, corrective exercises? Sure. So let me, you know, because I know... I know this will be a problem for some individuals. I only do single joint exercises if I am trying to activate a particular muscle. So by no means am I saying that single joint exercises overall for like resistance training, strength training, performance enhancement are advantageous. They're not. Um, but if I'm trying to do a single joint movement, let's say I'm doing the, the glute. right? Let's say I'm, we're going back to the glute max. That's going to have to be a hip joint motion. I'm going to have to try to find a way to keep the lumbar spine and the knee out of the motion because my commonly overactive synergists, the muscles that want to take over for my glute max, are my lumbar extensors and biceps femoris. So if I allow somebody to use their lumbar extensors and biceps femoris to complete the movement, I give them a movement pattern that they can use that compensation pattern for, guess what their body's going to do? They're going to do it, right? Now, if I use a single joint pattern, like let's say I use hip extension with abduction for glute max, and I'm going to do this with triple extension, so they're going to be lying prone with their leg nice and long. And this I'm actually describing you my glute max activation technique, which is on the videos here. Um, I can even take this up a notch 
reciprocally inhibit the overactive synergists by having them lock their knee, contract their quad, reciprocally the, inhibiting the biceps femoris, point their toe and reinforce triple extension a little bit, or go into plantar flexion rather and reinforce triple extension a little bit. I'll have them draw in, or you could even have them brace if you want to, to make sure that my erector spinae is reciprocally inhibited, and now make this person do just extension and abduction of the hip, who's the only muscle left that can work? I get it. I get it. I want, yeah, no, I want to play, like, uh, I mean, all of that makes obviously perfect sense to me. It's not, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's simplified, but I think it's, no, nothing is like, I mean, it's not, no offense, it's not crazy novel. It's just, it's focusing on the intended muscle groups that should be working by inhibiting, you know, the uh, antagonistic muscle group. But in, in, um, I, there, I can totally see the value. I guess, um, I am curious, too, to see if you think that there is a place for compound movements. Let's say, devil's advocate, that um, it's not a... Uh, I don't know if I can delineate these these two terms, but like, let's say it's not a quote-unquote activation issue, but it's a proprioceptive issue or something else. If a compound movement works in terms of uh, adjusting... Um, activation or if it's, a, if it's a, a matter of giving some sort of tactile cue, if it works, is it wrong, you know? I mean, can... That's a, that's a, a great question. Uh, is there a place for integrated movement patterns? Absolutely. Realize that if I'm going to do an activation, I'm going to spend the time to do glute max, glute mean, let's say posterior tib and anterior tib since we've been talking about it, activation. That's four exercises. That was five minutes of my program. I'm going to follow that up with whatever movement pattern I was trying to fix. Sure. Because you need to reinforce the new pattern. Sure, absolutely. So, um, I do use a, a model that basically looks like the, a blown-up version of this NASM CES, right, which is uh, release, lengthen, or inhibit, lengthen, activate, integrate. Mm-hmm. So there's always that integrated movement pattern in there. So yeah, it's a means to an end. The means is not. It's like it's not like to get great at a single leg hip bridge or something, you mm-hmm. know. Right. Yeah, that's not the. I, yeah, that's not my my goal. In fact, my goal is basically just to replace an athlete's warm up with something more sophisticated that actually helps them move better. You know. Well, yeah, and. Uh, a lot of what you mentioned, we, we have a lot of tools and pieces that do exactly that. They kind of lock you into a position, and then we we challenge just a, a single joint through uh, just multi-planes. And then our stress is just a heaviest barbell. So we are right in line with your, your thinking, your finding, and your philosophy. So this this is a super intriguing, and I, I'm going to dive head first into your website. Yeah. I mean, I think... You know, you were talking about the proprioception issue. Mm-hmm. I think the one thing, you know, people ask me, I guess the more common terms was, is it a stability issue or a mobility issue, right? We hear that all the time. Yeah. If you want to say, is it a stability, <laughs> mobility, or proprioceptive issue, my answer is always going to be yes. Yeah. Like, it's all, you can't separate the, the components of the human movement system. I know. I don't know why, but that whole, that trio makes me want to vomit, kind of, uh, because it's so overused. <laughs> I mean, there, it, like, there are people who use those terms to, to how they should be intended to be used, but I think you can uh, relate. I mean, some people really overuse, and they don't know 
what mobility is or, you know, what role it plays or, for instance, flexibility. I mean, yeah, but they, they're all integrated. That's why I like your answer. Yes, it's like, yeah, yes, they're all. Definitely, you definitely have people who lean more than one direction than the other. Lean in one direction more than the other. Like, you'll have people sure. come in like Gumby, right, and they're mm -hmm. crazy hypermobile and not very stable, but chances are even they have tightnesses somewhere. Um, right. It goes for the other side, like, you know, Tex looks like a big guy. He might... Hell yeah. 5'8", 210. 5'8", Amazing bone density. That's a pretty <laughs> amazing bone density. He's a I have nine pounds guy. of bones. I, I am big bone. Uh, that's that's big for 5'8", man. There's no doubt about that. I'm 6'3", I'm <laughs> or 5'8". Luke, what do you say? No, I'm just, I don't deny that you're big boned. I just, you know, would expect better performance out of you. <laughs> wow. All right. So, bringing this back <laughs> down to something that's not going to lead to a fight. Um, you know, but Tex could come in, and I could see that he's a strong guy, and maybe he has more mobility issues, but I guarantee I could find weaknesses on him, too. You know, like, and that that's not to say that Tex is weak. It's to say that his systems are trying to inhibit certain muscles and he has lower tone in certain muscles because he's not moving optimally. And I guess I yeah. should mention, guys, perfect posture doesn't exist. Like, we are always working to optimize our human movement system. Mm -hmm. There is no perfect. I've never seen a perfect squat. Well, I've Brent, seen professional you know. athletes. I haven't seen you guys, granted. Yeah, we're uh, pretty close. No. We're pretty close. I, you know, I kind of believe it. I kind of No, no. Um, we're, yeah, I can agree with that. I mean, and the, and there there's just there's no quote unquote perfect and I mean for every for every different uh you know, body proportion and limb length, there's going to be a difference closer to perfection. You know, there's it's just Well, I'm 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 talking about what is our goal. You know, our goal is to optimize human movement. Mm -hmm. So I'm not even so much worried about proportions. You mm -hmm. know, I think proportions for the most part are proportional for most people. And mm -hmm. frankly, I can't fix them, so what do I care? Mm -hmm. um, but you're always just, you know, perfection is a journey, not a destination. Just like a NASCAR mechanic is constantly tinkering on their vehicle to try to get that next little bit of power out, that's the way we should be looking at these new integrated exercise movement prep slash corrective exercise warm-ups. Yeah, we are like the the rednecks of strength and conditioning, uh, and just as the NASCAR people, we are just constantly tinkering. That's it. <laughs> AB, ABT always be tinkering. Yeah, I mean they they go around circles on the track, and we just keep doing the same exercises over and over same and over. Same shit looks I'm good. You really need to do. Um. <laughs> Um, so let's talk a little bit more about, um, you know, Tex asked the question about the hamstrings, and I'm just curious if we can branch off of that and talk a little bit about um, the common overuse injuries and uh, things that you find. I mean, you sort of talked about the knees briefly, about how those are what I would call, like, the forgotten middle child between the ankle and the hip, where it's just like, oh, they just take the brunt of everything between the two. Um, you know, is there any uh, other, like, really neglected movement patterns that you think exist? Or, for instance, like, planes of motion that aren't trained um, as frequently as maybe should be? Uh, yeah, this is, this is a pretty big rabbit hole. This is a loaded um, question. This is a loaded question. So, 
generally speaking, hamstring issues are going to come from either lower leg dysfunction or lumbopelvic hip complex dysfunction and some variant therein. Occasionally, it's sacroiliac joint dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Um, some common signs that you guys would see if we were going to go back to a squat that might be leading to some of their hamstring issues would be feet turn out, uh, knees bow in, knees bow out, or an asymmetrical weight shift. Uh, all of that stuff, and anterior pelvic tilt, excessive forward lean, sorry. So all five of those things could potentially lead to hamstring issues. Again, that would go back to correcting, I would work on correcting the dysfunction. What I would do for the hamstring in specifically is actually not much. You know, I might try something like Graston or some inhibition taping to, uh, that's the kinesiology kinesiological tape, like rock tape. Mm-hmm. Um, I might try some of that just to lessen symptoms and give things a chance to heal, but it's going to be big on trying to fix that dysfunction, whatever it is. Um, you know, we can't heal tissue. We always have to keep that in mind. I can't go in and put your hamstring back together. But I can put your body into a better position so that less stress is placed on this muscle so that your body can do its job more efficiently. And that way we're very much, there's an old, uh, an old phrase of medicine is what we do to entertain the patient while the body heals itself. That's, that's kind of what we're doing. Yeah. We yeah. need to, we need to just kind of realize that overall that all we can do is kind of fix somebody's movement patterns. We might have a couple techniques that help healing a little bit. Um, like some of these fascial techniques and stuff might help connective tissue heal in a way that allows for better mobility. Um, but other than that, man, you just, you just like, try to get back to perfect. Yeah, just an expensive distraction. <laughs> yes, yes, unfortunately. I mean, I've definitely had a couple surgeries myself. You know, I deal with dysfunction just like everybody else does. Years of basketball has definitely take its, takes its toll on my body, but... Uh, what about um, specific planes of motion? I mean, so much of sport, with the rise of things like like CrossFit or, um, you know, even just Olympic lifting or powerlifting, it really happens in a limited plane of motion. And do you ever work with athletes who either come from one background and are going into another and, for instance, neglect things like transverse um, you know, or rotational movements, and you know, what are the implications of that that you may have seen? Great question. Um, yeah, like I do a lot of frontal and transverse plane movement, undoubtedly, especially for the lower body. The upper body, I think we have a better variety of exercises overall in the gym. Even looking at our traditional exercises, we tend to use more planes. Mm-hmm. The lower body, people really get just sagittal plane not even dominant. They're like tunnel vision. They, they yeah. don't see anything um, And some of that has to obviously do with the way the knee moves, right? The knee moves in one plane, more or less. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, you have to get those frontal and transverse plane motions going um, because most injuries do not occur in the sagittal plane. Now, if you take something like CrossFit, I think, I think athletes have already learned their lesson, Right? I think we had a couple athletes when a few years ago when CrossFit really made its major boom. A couple athletes were using CrossFit, and now no athletes use CrossFit anymore. You're talking about uh, like field sport athletes. Yeah. 
And it's yeah. funny though, I think there are, I mean, there are, there are still some trickling in, like let's say, you know, some, some football programs that are saying that they're starting to include, I mean, I'm talking about too at the professional level or saying, oh, so-and-so is, you know, implementing CrossFit, but here's the thing, here's the thing, no one knows what the fuck they're doing in their training, like, you know, cro CrossFit is, is constantly varied functional movements performed at the high intensity, you know, and so that could be anything, and uh, that doesn't mean it's necessarily just, you know, sagittal movements or frontal plane movements, you know, it could be, it could be anything, and so, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily put a bad taste in my mouth or make me think that they're limiting their training or, or, or you know, doing something, for instance, that's not appropriate. It's like, it's anything, so... I think you just, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Tex. Go ahead. Uh, I'm I'm curious. Do you have any uh, anti-rotation tools? Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm neck deep deep in the ACL, and uh, so what I'm focusing right now is that the action of the hamstring or the knee is still controlled through the sagittal plane, even though your body is moving through the frontal. Your body's twisting and going through transverse, but your knee is still protecting by posterior loading through the sagittal plane. So I'm curious if you have any anti-rotation techniques or uh, knowledge, background, anything that you can kind of throw my way. Um, I think you need to look at my up chop video. I actually go to a single leg variation of the up chop, and that definitely was part of my knee rehab after my knee surgery. Um, it definitely puts a little torque on your knee. I think most importantly, which <laughs> you know what I'm going to go back to, Strengthen your glutes and inverters. Yeah. Um, you know, your foot control, your foot and your glutes control rotation of the knee. Rotation of the knee is nothing more than femoral and tibial rotation, which can come from your ankle, right? We know that pro, uh, inversion and eversion are related to tibial internal and external rotation, and uh, femoral, like hip internal and external rotation is, that rotation goes all the way down to the knee. So... Strengthen your glute max, strengthen your glute need until you can't fit in your pants. Um, get those inverters strong. Not a problem. Huh? <laughs> Not a problem. And uh, get on the uh, get on that upshot video. I think you'll like it. Um, I think it's I think it was a good one for me. It's tough. It's really really tough. Single leg upshot. Yeah, that sounds dicey. That sounds dicey. Um, so, Brent, what do you have going on in 2015 now? Any big plans? Wow. Um, yeah, like, things are pretty crazy. So I just hired two more writers, uh, just switched over my web development team. Um, we're going to keep pushing forward with this online online training uh, program that we've created at ilovemyself.com, a.k.a. brentbrookbush.com. <laughs> um you know, I think it's it's just trying to dial all that stuff in. We have a CEC site right now. I think moving forward, we're going to push that CEC site into membership to brentbrookbush.com. In essence, if you're a member, you'll get to do CECs for free online through our program. Um, and then I'm just looking forward to all the new content we're going to get into. This weekend, I'm going to start doing kinesiology taping videos. Um and I've talked with uh, Medical Minds in Motion and Rick Daigle about possibly doing a little partnership with them on the taping thing because they teach a lot of taping courses. We're going to start, so we have the muscular anatomy articles. Um, two of my writers who I went to school with are very interested in starting joint 
functional anatomy articles, which I think will be really cool. Um, so we're going to get that going. We've been looking around. I've been hinting at the fact that I'd like to do functional exercise physiology, which would be like an intro to program design course. Mm -hmm. um, so I've kind of talked to a couple people about that. I mean, the whole – you guys kind of know where I'm going. Like, I've been going in the same direction for years. It's just going to keep getting bigger. Yeah. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, it's funny. I think most people sort of do things in terms of their website in, in reverse, and they dive in because uh, the sexy stuff is usually like that programming design, and, uh, you know, it, it, it usually happens – after the fact that they get into things like uh, their articles and physiology and continuing education. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think, like, it sounds like you're making great progress and you have a pretty, like, substantial following. And, shoot, I mean, very successful 2015. Do you do uh, seminars out of uh, New York or do you travel for them? Yeah, so we have three seminars we've been offering for the last okay. three years. We do Let's them twice it. a year in New York. Um, we had plans on going national, and then the membership site kind of took over. So we just switched to a membership model mm -hmm. um, with the website. Before, I, I mean, I was basically writing all of this stuff for free up mm -hmm. until December 30, was there 30 or 31 days in December? Anyway, until the end of December of 2014. You know, we've only been taking memberships for like two months. Yeah. So that's kind of our focus right now. Once we get past that, we'll probably start pushing national. But we do offer a functional, a two-day functional anatomy course, which you guys were talking about, um, and advancements in program design. Our, our advancements in exercise selection, which is basically a two-day corrective exercise lab. Like we just learn tons of techniques and case studies and whatnot. And then we offer a two-day program design course called advancements in program design. So, who, who is your generally your demographic who comes to that? It's mostly personal trainers. I mean, I get more and more physical therapists, ATCs, and DCs now. But, you know, in New York City especially, like I taught inside the two largest health club chains for six years. Mm -hmm. So before I even left those two facilities, there's a good chance I taught between four and 5,000 personal trainers. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that's a big part of my demographic, probably a big part of my following, because all these guys were like, oh, yeah, that guy taught my foundations course, or, oh, yeah, that guy taught my Equinox Fitness Training Institute course, you know, like, they kind of recognize me from that. Yeah, that's great. Um, and those are, you're, you worked at the, the, the swanky of the swank, especially in New York City. I mean, I know that you said it was a New York sports club, is that correct? Yep. Isn't that, that's like the biggie. Um they are a big, TSI is a big player in the market, um, for sure. Equinox is definitely getting bigger, bigger and bigger, and they're the high-end, the kind of the high-end gym out here. I know. I think uh, back in, in my personal training days, I, I was always a little intimidated about going to work for Equinox because I was not uh, bronze uh, regularly and uh, constantly wearing cocoa butter or greased up, so was always a little bit intimidated, and that goes, you know, obviously there's like a little bit of a personal trainer cliche involved there, but uh, I was always a little intimidated because those broads were so beautiful, always with their hair down. Um, you just yeah. have to have a healthy dose of narcissism. Like if you walk in with ilovemyself.com, which is full of pictures of you. Exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it was actually kind of funny how I, I uh, ended up at Equinox. I, I had gotten so tired of working weekends at New York Sports Club. Like, I think I went three months at one point without a day off. Oh, my God. Uh, just because, you know, you had to keep your sessions up. You know how it goes. I mean, you yeah. had to keep your session numbers up so you'd get that pay. And then I would teach all these different weekends, teaching the foundations course. And I just loved to teach. So I, And I wanted to stay in the mix. I didn't want them to try to, like, replace me. It's a very competitive environment for faculty. Mm -hmm. um, at least it was back then. So I was teaching all the time, and then I, you know, got an interview at Equinox, and they happened to teach their workshops Monday through Friday, from like three to five in the afternoon. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> I'm out. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I want my weekends back. Yeah, you can actually wrap your mind around that schedule. Yeah. So of course now I'm right back to where I started. I have something like thirty or thirty-five weekends booked this year. So. Wow. Whatever. Well, we call that balls deep. You are officially balls deep, and, uh, ah, and that's okay. That's okay. That's a good thing. You're busy. I've been called the bomb, and now I'm balls deep this week. I'll have to change the side into my door. Like, you won't get to <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It'll say, Brett Brooke Bush, the bomb, I'm balls deep. <laughs> I don't know how my patients are going to feel about that, walking into my office that way, but, you know, yeah. we'll give it a try. I bet you didn't know that that's that was you were gonna be uh, that that was gonna be my diagnosis of you on this podcast. So I didn't we didn't forewarn you, but this is uh, this is sort of the point where we talk about useless shit and maybe potentially get a little more crass than usual. But Tex, did you have anything else? Um, uh, Particularly you know, crass to say. Yeah. A anything um, pertinent to our listening? Uh, not, we got to get him back sometime. Let me go freaking just dive into his website, and we'll have him back in six months. And by then, he'll have a whole bunch of new stuff that I wasn't prepared for, and then we'll we'll get him back again in another six months. Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good, man. I had fun, guys. No doubt. You guys have a cool show. This is awesome. definitely the most out-there podcast I've done to this point. Uh, now, Tex, Tex, would you say that you need to go balls deep in Brent Brookbush? <laughs> No, strike that from this recording. Can you say that five times? Luke, why are you yelling right now? I just like to yell. Oh, my God. Holy cow. Where are you guys located again? We are in Southern California. Tex is in Washington, D.C. Denny is in, where, Denny, where are you? Chicago. Chicago. I'm in Chicago. Tex, I'm glad you turned down using that phrase because you are way too close to me to say something like that. <laughs> the rest of you guys, I'm just kind of glad I'm more than a thousand miles away. If this I, is where we're going. I will tell you, Brent, as part of our, our marketing for the podcast, we always put, um, and I'll send the links to you for these images, but um, so we'll put your picture up on Wednesday with a, a quote from the show, something that was uh well there's a couple of quotes in the running right now. One of them is the text <laughs> one and the other is of course I love myself .com. I love myself .com. Did yeah. anyone actually check to see if that's a taken? <laughs> well, that's definitely text. taken. Text uh, you should grab that if it's not it well, is definitely taken by me. If <laughs> yeah, somebody needs to take this. Somebody needs to take that. Yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah, I let think... me know, and I'll 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 hit my social media um, too. So you yeah, guys. Yeah. Hey, Brent, you don't have a podcast, do you? 
No, 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 no. I don't have a podcast, but good. You know, don't get one because uh, we will lose all no our followers. To. Yeah, we'll lose all no our followers. I'm actually on another pro- podcast in like a month, and you know, I like I like doing podcasts, but I have my hands full. So who whose podcast are you on in a month? It's actually really interesting. You guys know Ryan DeBell? Uh, I don't think so. I don't. Ryan DeBell actually wrote an article that went viral about. I can't remember the title, but it's like why you should squat, how you're comfortable, um, and uh, variations in, in bone shape of the femur. And then there was these pictures of like cadaver bones. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I remember this. So yes. we got into a, a debate um, on a Facebook group, and it ends up Ryan DeBell is a really, really nice guy, um, really uh, knowledgeable guy. Um, so after the debate, he invited me on, and I, I'm – my writers are looking up some some research that I, I kind of wanted to address that with because mm-hmm. uh, I think it points to a bigger bigger issue, which is people using the excuse of I have a structural abnormality, which is yeah. why I'm not going to do stretching or mobility work ever. Yeah. Um. So, but he's like he's he's a total sweetheart of a guy. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think we're going to have a really good discussion. Oh, come on, Brent. This sounds spicy. I am looking forward to this one. This is going to be... I know that you're like, oh, you know, he's a really nice guy, but listen, I know a spicy I'm gonna, cat. I'm going to put the gloves spicy. on. <laughs> I'm going to put the gloves on and the Vaseline, you know, yeah. around my eyes. I'm getting listen, ready. I've been trained. I know a cat fight when I see one, and this is a full-fledged squat off, uh, so I'm looking forward to it. I'll have to listen to that one. I like the fight, too, so it's cool. Uh, <laughs> as long as we still respect each other at the end, it's, it's ah, nah. You definitely won't. You definitely won't. But you'll come out on top because uh, because <laughs> because I mean, on your podcast. Exactly, exactly. And you're not an immediate threat to our podcast through your own podcast. So therein, no. you're part I'm of the fold. Forward to being back on your podcast. What I was gonna yeah. say is I will put you guys on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, all of my social media, so I can Perfect. drive some hits your way. Yeah. Um, I do have a pretty, pretty good size following. It generally helps. No big deal. Cool. Good for, good for you. All right, guys. Well, that's it from my end. Um, anybody else have anything they need to uh, touch base on? It's no? all good. I'm good. All right. Uh, thank you. Enough. Thank you so much, Brent, for for joining us today. And we look forward to having you on six months when you are even more knowledgeable and when you've. Uh, easily kick that guy's ass via podcast. <laughs> or Ryan. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. I'm going to have you guys on with me. Yeah. Like I have my posse. Yeah. I'm going to go hardcore. That sounds great. All right, guys. Well, everyone have a great day, and we'll talk to you next week. Sounds good. Bye. Thanks a lot, Brad. See you guys. Thank you. Well, that just about does it for this episode of Power Athlete Radio. Please head to Brent's website for more resources, including videos, seminar information, and premium membership content. That's brentbrookbush.com. Stay tuned to next week's episode when we have Christy Phillips-Atkins on our show. Christy is a four-time individual CrossFit Games competitor and accomplished nurse. Standing at just 5 feet 4 inches, she holds her own among some of the most fierce female competitors in the sport. Hear how she stays humble despite her exposure to some of the more confident athletes in CrossFit. What's her plan of attack for this year's Open? To find out, you'll have to tune in to episode 98. 
Bye.